This morning, we'll be continuing our study in 1 Corinthians. So please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. We are still trying to move along at the anticipated pace. So 1 Corinthians 3 is what we'll try to cover this morning. And we're going to be talking about the wrongness of disunity in the church. The wrongness of disunity in the church. I did check to confirm that wrongness is indeed a word. Um, So anyone else can fact check me on that. But the wrongness of disunity in the church or the unfitness of disunity in the church. Again, we'll be in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 through 23. I'll open us up in prayer and then we'll just dive right in to reading through this passage and digging into it together. So please bow with me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the privilege it is, we say it every week, but the true privilege it is to come before you in prayer and to have your word, to be able to talk to you and to hear from you when we gather together, to be able to do so individually in our own devotional time. It is such a privilege, especially in a world that is um, confused and confusing when messages are coming at us from every angle. We've, We've spent our weeks being influenced by various voices pulling us one way or the other, and we just right now, just as we've just done when we gathered with the whole church, we want to hear from you, we want to hear from your word, and we want to have our lives influenced and changed and transformed by what you have to tell us this morning. I ask that you'd help me to speak clearly and to articulate the truth of this passage well, and I ask that you'd be with every heart here, including mine, and allow your word to have its full impact on us as we study it, as we dig into it, as we talk through how it impacts our lives. So please bless our time this morning. Allow it to be richly beneficial for each of us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this morning, as we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and the wrongness of disunity in the church, our outline for this morning will be essentially looking at five reasons that disunity within the church is wrong. Five reasons that disunity within the church is wrong. And I'm going to just start by reading the whole passage. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1 through 23. But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now, you are not ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Paul? What is Apollos? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So, neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. You are God's field, God's building. According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation, and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation 
with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he's wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours. And you are Christ's and Christ is God's. The first section we'll look at is the first four verses, and we'll see how disunity flows from infantile thinking. Infantile thinking, thinking, living like an infant. The case in 1 Corinthians was that extreme spiritual immaturity characterized the believers in Corinth. Extreme spiritual immaturity. Paul, in seeking to address the Corinthians, which he presumably is either referencing his first letter or his most recent visit to Corinth, he was unable to address them as mature Christians. And it's important to note, look at verse 1. I had to address you as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. It is really important to realize that though they were in Christ, though they were believers, they were infants. They were baby Christians. And then there's some evidence of spiritual immaturity in the Corinthian church just seen in these verses. One is inability to digest spiritually substantial meals. Another is jealousy seen in these verses. Strife, division. These were the indications of these believers' lives that they were baby Christians, extremely young in the faith. And maturity, of course, should, should have been their aim. They should have wanted to grow to maturity. And maturity should be our earnest aim. Colossians 1.28, again, Paul writing, says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So Paul's labor, the labor of those ministering to those in Colossae and also in Corinth and anywhere was that they would come to maturity. That is a right aim for us individually as well. We want to grow in maturity. When you read about spiritual immaturity anywhere in Scripture, it's not a good sign. It's not a good place to be. There's a couple additional marks of spiritual immaturity that I wanted to highlight from just a couple other passages in the New Testament. Additional marks of immaturity in Scripture. One is in Ephesians 4.14. I included that verse in your handout, but the context is, is super helpful to note also. 
But the first indicator is susceptibility to false teaching. Susceptibility to false teaching. The verse reads, Ephesians 4.14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, by human cunning. A baby Christian, an infant Christian, here in Ephesians 4, two illustrations are used. One is the idea of someone that's just something, someone that's just battered and tossed by the waves. If you've ever been in major waves before, you know what it's like to just be beat around by waves, tossed to and fro. It's the idea of a a ship without a sail, without a rudder. It's just wherever the waves are going to take it is where it's going to go. And then the other idea is carried about by every wind of doctrine. It's a a tumbleweed Christian that's not rooted, that's not stable. So susceptibility to false teaching, susceptibility and vulnerability. Even the term vulnerability should make us like nervous. I mean, you think of an infant, vulnerable. Any of us adults, especially any of us parents, have an impulse to protect that vulnerable baby. That's the case that someone that's an infant in Christ, that's, that's their danger, except for it's danger of false teaching. The second is a perpetual need for the most simple doctrines. A perpetual need for the most simple doctrines. Now, I want to just pause here and say we rightly and regularly articulate the importance of rehearsing the gospel to ourselves, being reminded of the basics. That's good for the most mature of Christian. But here, what's being talked about in Hebrews 5.12 is an inability to digest and process anything but the most simple aspects of Christianity. Hebrews 5.12 says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk and not solid food. So a Christian infant, a baby Christian, is characterized by a perpetual need for the most simple doctrine. Also, right after that in Hebrews uh, 5.13, a baby Christian is characterized by unskilled handling of the word of righteousness. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. He is a child. Just a a tendency to mishandle the word. And fourthly, which we're seeing primarily what's being addressed in 1 Corinthians, in the letter to the Corinthians, the first letter to the Corinthians, is divisiveness within the body of Christ. Divisiveness within the body of Christ is a sign of spiritual infancy. For you are still of the flesh, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh, behaving only in a human way. That's the idea, some of the ideas surrounding spiritual infancy, and some of those things manifesting in the church, but where there's one of those things in a young believer's life, usually there's going to be multiple. They kind of come as a package deal. So what's an implication as we think about this for our lives? I think 2 Corinthians, at the end of his second letter, Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, Examine yourselves and see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail to meet the test. Unless you fail to meet the test. 
So the exhortation in Scripture is examine yourselves. Look at the fruit of your life. Look at your life. Observe and see, am I in the faith? Spiritual immaturity does not mean someone is not saved. That seems basic, right? They're, they're an infant, but they are an infant in Christ. So it doesn't mean they're not saved. But the spiritually immature person will not be able to see fruit in their lives and consequently will be uncertain about the surety of their salvation. As we grow in Christian maturity, the evidences of our salvation multiply and we can more confidently recognize spiritual fruit. So when we're called in 2 Corinthians 13 to examine ourselves, someone that's in that category of an infant believer is going to have a hard time having an accurate assessment of their spiritual maturity because there's not much to observe. So in thinking through this, it's important to just consider rightly, where am I at in this? Am I, am I an infant believer in desperate need of someone to come alongside me and help me? Do I need to seek out help in this? Do these things characterize my life? I like, yeah, I, I do feel like I'm just kind of swayed by anyone that says they're saying something Christian, susceptibility to false teaching. And yeah, I, I do feel like the only thing I can digest is the most basic presentation of the gospel. Or, yes, I, I am unskilled in handling the word. Or, yes, I do tend towards divisiveness in the body. If those things characterize your life, seek out help. Don't stay in that place. Because that's, one, it's not a, a safe place to be, but it's not God's design and desire for Christians. God's design is that we grow to maturity, to the, to the maturity that we're able to be reproducing disciples, multiplying disciples. But it's really impossible to do that from a season of spiritual infancy. But then at the same time that you're assessing your own life, considering, do I even have the ability to process the milk of the gospel? Or is that foreign to me? Where am I truly spiritually? So we are to examine ourselves. I want to spend a little bit of time at tables discussing kind of expanding this, because this is just a little snapshot into immaturity. We've talked a little bit about maturity, but I want to ask you guys to just dig through and think through together. What additional marks of spiritual immaturity can you think of or find in the Bible? And what are some marks of spiritual maturity in the Bible? Where, where would you turn to when someone says, what does Scripture say about spiritual maturity? Where does, where's that talked about? So, Think through that, come up through passages together at tables, and we'll talk about it a little bit together in a few minutes. So think through spiritual immaturity and spiritual maturity in Scripture. Go. All right, five minutes goes by fast, but what were some verses that you guys turned to, found, either on either of the fronts, uh, immaturity or maturity? Throw some out there. This table. Fruit? Where would you turn to to talk about fruit? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yep. Great example. Yeah, observing. Yeah, you can see good fruit and bad fruit, and that is a very good indicator of maturity or deadness. Yep. What else? Other passages. Yeah. Yep. 
Great. Yeah. Proverbs 14, 15, you said? Yeah. Simple, believes everything. Great example. What else? Those are the only two passages that talk about immaturity or maturity? Go ahead. Either one. Yeah. That was, I'll admit, that was the first one I thought of when I was thinking through, like, what would I turn to for marks of maturity? And that's just such a, such a good passage that highlights so many aspects of a believer's life. So, what about you, Caitlin? Uh, Titus 2 1 through 8 is instructions Yes, that's a great example. Yeah, the, the pastoral epistles in general are just laden with examples of what maturity should, should be patterned after. Maybe one or two more passages. Yeah. Yeah, I love that example in 1 Timothy 4.12 because we often think, especially as young adults keep this in mind, that we often think that, oh, maturity as a believer requires a certain number of decades. And there's, that's actually not like a one-for-one translation at all. There's spiritual immaturity prevalent among those in their latter years, and there is great spiritual maturity. I mean, Timothy's an example of that in his younger years of setting an example, even for those that are older. So great example there. That spiritual maturity is not dependent on our age. I also just generally encourage you guys as you're reading through Scripture to be thinking through this as a, a paradigm to be looking for and thinking through where can I observe things that are aspects of spiritual maturity that I should strive for. Um, oftentimes we see the commands and the instructions and we rightly realize I'm not saved by works, so I, I just kind of, I might want to steer away from dwelling on those things, but to the contrary, these things are, are given for our instruction, for our edification, for our maturity, and there are things that we're exhorted to do, not because they save us, but because they produce maturity in us and they help us to be effective. So, just wanted to encourage thinking through those things. So, we'll jump into the second point, which is actually two points in one, and kind of going a little bit out of order, but I, th- I think you'll see why I'm connecting these dots together. More reasons why disunity is wrong in the church. Disunity fails to realize that God is the one building his church, verses 5 through 9, and disunity destroys what God is committed to building. So it fails to recognize that God is committed to building his church, and it actually works directly against what God is building. So, the passage in, in verses 5 through 9, What then is Paul, Apollos, what then is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. In that classic verse, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, or some translations, co-workers. You are God's field, God's building. God is committed to his field and his building. But then later on in verse 16 and 17, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. So one thing to highlight here, verses six through eight, is the insignificance of the minister, the insignificance of the messenger, the insignificance of even the apostle. The apostles were servants 
The apostles were servants filling out the tasks that had been assigned to them by God. God gets all the glory because God, put, it, put that word in there, God gives all the gro- growth. God gets all the glory because God gives all the growth. Verses 6 through 7. And here we see God's commitment to his church. Verse 9 highlights that they're, they're laboring as fellow workers, co-workers. Laboring with God as a co-worker. We are God's fellow workers. That is a profound reality that anyone doing God's work is invited into, to be a co-worker with God, to be partnered with God in what he's doing. The one who labors to build up the church, the one who labors to build up the church is a co-worker in what God is doing. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, and I tell you, Peter, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Christ is building his church. That's what he's committed to. That's what he promised when he was here on earth. And those of us that labor, which should be all believers, laboring to build up the body of Christ, we're co-workers with God in what he's doing. God's efforts in and for the church are described in three ways in this passage. God's church is likened to a field. You are God's field. God is working in the church. God is working in the church, like a farmer laboring to see growth, constantly caring for the field, pulling out weeds, watering, taking care of those crops. We are God's field. God is working in the church. We are God's building. God is building up the church, like an architect and a builder dedicated to constructing a masterful project. God is committed to building up the church. And we are God's temple. God is dwelling in the church. God is dwelling in the church, like the glorious temple of Solomon's day, intricately designed and built, and then inhabited by the glory of God's presence. God is building and inhabiting the church as his temple, his place of dwelling. Church buildings are good. They're really helpful. We have a place to gather here. We're not all squeezed into one of our homes. Church buildings are great. Sanctuaries are great. Worship spaces are great. As long as we don't think that's where God lives. God doesn't live in a church building. God indwells his church, which is his people. The gathered believers and the scattered believers. We are where God dwells. And that's what God's committed to building. This isn't talking about the the physical outposts where the church gathers. This is talking about God indwelling the church through God's individual indwelling through the Holy Spirit of each believer, which is amazing and has a lot of implications for how we even think about the church. So just kind of mirroring what was talked about in verse 9, where we can labor with God as his co-workers, all the way down in verse 16 and 17 is the, the flip side of that, which is laboring against God as a saboteur. In the same way that someone would labor to build a building, someone that labors to destroy a building, that, that lays explosives at the foundations and runs, that's what someone is like that is working against what God is doing. Verse 16, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. Actions that are tearing apart a church, ripping apart a church, working against the growth and sanctification of believers, false teaching, whatever it might be, This is someone that's working against God. So in the same way that the concept of being God's co-worker is exciting, the thought of being God's, 
don't know the antonym of coworker, someone working against what God's doing, is a frightful thing. Because, I mean, you think about how committed God is to his church. We do not want to be on the disassembling side of what he's committed to building. So some implications, just briefly. Because Christ is committed to building his church, we should be too. Because Christ is committed to building his church, we should be too. God cares for his people. He tends to this field. He builds this building. He indwells believers corporately. We should care about his church. A couple discussion questions again at tables. From last week, this is kind of the homework question to think through over the course of the week. How do the images of the church as God's field, God's building, and God's temple help to display the unity of the church and the folly of division? And then practically, what would it look like for someone to destroy God's temple? What, how, how might that actually play out in, uh, in daily life? And then lastly, how does the holiness of God's temple, the church, highlight the importance of each of us to pursue personal holiness? So take another four or five minutes to talk through those questions at tables and we'll uh, reconvene and, and finish out the last couple sections. So go for it. All right, I'm going to look at that second question together and hear what you guys talked about at tables regarding what it might look like practically for someone to destroy God's temple. What do you guys talk about? What do you, what do you think that might look like for us today? Yeah, great example. Yeah, basically bringing a false, false message that's going to be spiritually detrimental to the individual, but doing it in the name of the gospel. Yeah, great example. What else? A lot of right answers to this question. So, yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a great point, too, and just in general, thinking about, okay, they are thinking of, like, literal temples when, when God is saying temple, and of course, or when Paul is saying temple. Of course, that's not what Paul's referring to, but, like, those sorts of accounts would be what's standing out of, like, okay, what, is it, what does it practically look like to defile God's temple? What does it look like to destroy God's temple? What does it look like to use it for the wrong purposes? And that's the sort of thing that would be thought of. I think it again speaks to the, the context from, from day one when we were going through this. Is like, remember Corinth is a city that like city center is literally surrounded by temples. So when Paul's saying, you are God's temple, they're thinking of all these physical temples, places that are like, oh, that's the dwelling place of this God. That's the dwelling place of this God. That's the dwelling place of this God. And Paul's not saying, when you gather at the temple, he's saying, you are the temple, which is, very, very countercultural to what everyone else is thinking of in, in Corinth, which is really cool. Any other thoughts on that, that question of practically what it might look like for someone to destroy God's temple? That next question on why that highlights the importance for us to pursue personal holiness. 
thoughts on that, uh, comments from your guys' discussion at tables? Yeah, absolutely. Where one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. And then he talks about that later on in a few chapters from now, but great example there where where one where one body part is not pursuing holiness, it it brings down the net holiness of the, the church family, which is spiritually detrimental. Absolutely. Any other comments on that before we move on? Okay, we're gonna just fly through the last section so we have some time to break into prayer groups at the end here. But Verses 10 through 15, disunity tends towards building with man-centered building materials. These verses, I want to emphasize, these verses are primarily in reference to those laboring in ministry, specifically the apostles, pastors, those of especially the first century. Primarily in reference to those laboring in ministry, Paul has specific people in mind when he's writing this. But these verses also have significant implications for every believer regarding living a life of substance. There's one foundation, Ephesians 2, 19 through 22, the whole verse is there, but verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. The church is built on one foundation, Paul and the apostles collectively laid the foundation of the church through their God-inspired testimony to Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, the foundation. Christ alone is the foundation that they laid as the church was being built in the first century. There is one foundation. And this reality, the fact that Christ is the foundation, means that two things are excluded. Two things are excluded by the fact that Christ is the foundation of the church. First, laying a different foundation is excluded. False religions, which are offshoots of Christianity, are Satan's methods of leading people away from the foundation of Jesus Christ. In many ways, Mormonism is Satan's attempt to lead people away from the gospel by presenting an additional foundation other than the Lord Jesus Christ. For them, this is the authority of modern-day prophets, the writings of Joseph Smith, the need for works to enter heaven. There's two foundations happening. They're saying, yeah, oh yeah, you need, the, you need the New Testament. Yeah, you need Jesus. And here's what else you need. Another example of a multi-foundational false religion would be Roman Catholicism, where the false foundation of papal infallibility and the authority of the Roman church tradition is equal with the apostles' authority in the written word. Two foundations, two, two places that you're supposed to stand on, that you're supposed to build your life on. So building on a different foundation, building a different foundation, is excluded by the fact that Christ alone is the foundation of the church. But a second thing is excluded and prohibited as a result of Christ being the foundation. And the second is building on the true foundation with unfit material is excluded. Building on the foundation of Christ, but doing so with building material that is categorically, substantially, qualitatively different than the foundation. If the foundation is Christ, the gospel of our Lord and Savior, then to build on top of that foundation with something that is Christless 
is bizarre. There are activities and efforts that a Christian can be doing that are not evil, but which are eternally insignificant. When Paul refers to gold and silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, he isn't referring to six different types of things and you need to specifically think of each one and, oh, this represents this and and this represents this. And this passage can easily be overly spiritualized and forced to say something it's not. But what immediately follows just highlights what's being talked about here. There's three types of things that don't get burned up when you pass them through fire and three types of things that get burned up immediately. And when talking about building a temple, what's interesting here, these two different types of material, gold, silver, precious stones, that was the sort of material used to build the temple. These enduring heavy materials that didn't just get burned up. But then you think about the everyday home back in those days, that was built with wood, hay, and straw. Because the foundation is permanent, the foundation is not going to burn away, that's the sort of building materials that should be used in God's temple. So these things that, things that are in regard to quote-unquote church growth or strategies for missionary activity that might be categorically different than the gospel. It's like, okay, the, the gospel is this, you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, and it's the, the foundational truth And then in order to get our church to grow, we need to do this, 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 and this, which are totally detached from Christ. The the foundation is faith in Jesus Christ. Repent, turn to him, believe in him, be transformed by him. How can we grow the church? Well, we should do X, Y, and Z that have really nothing to do with Christ. Here in Corinth, the example is we need to have just this, this rhetorician that can just come and spin this philosophically airtight, and it's going to just be on par with the Greek thinkers of the day. That's what we need to to build the church in Corinth. And Paul's saying, no, we talked about that last week. I I resolved to know nothing among you except for Christ Jesus and him crucified. The same thing that is the foundation is the same means by which God is going to build his church. It's going to be Christ proclaimed, Christ glorified, and his word doing his work. So if the foundation is Christ, why would we labor to contribute Christless works and efforts to the building. A quote from uh, uh, Andrew Nicelli. Paul point, Paul's point is that the quality of the building materials must be consistent with the building's foundation of a crucified Messiah. Thus, to build with perishable materials is to build a church with motives and methods that are not gospel-centered, but reflect the worldly wisdom of this age. Verses 13 through 15, the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Some important points here. Each believer's life will be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.10. Each believer's life will be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ and only eternally substantial and truth-based efforts will pass the test and be rewarded. Note, this is not in any way in reference to a rejudgment for sins, which are all paid for by Christ's sacrifice. Verse 15 explicitly clarifies that Paul is not talking about salvation issues when he writes this. Anyone who places their faith in Jesus Christ and turns from their sin will be saved. They will be saved. They will pass the test. But if all of their life has been dedicated to building on the foundation with unsubstantial, basically useless things, 
that's about all that's going to happen is they're going to be saved. There's going to be no eternal rewards waiting for them in heaven. Interestingly, this is the fourth bullet point here. Eternal rewards, though not clearly defined in Scripture, eternal rewards are put forward as a legitimate motivation for full obedience to Christ and alignment with His Word. I think that's something we don't think about much, but Scripture regularly talks about our rewards in heaven. Some implications, we need to be watchful for anyone proclaiming to have a message which is fresh, distinct, new. The foundation has already been laid. Christ is the foundation. We should stay on it and build on him alone. I would plead with you all not to be swept away by fads which blow through the church and pull people into endless speculation, perpetual frivolity, and meaningless pursuits. Stay on Christ, stay on and in his word, and keep faithfully laboring to honor him through obedience and steady service to him. We should labor to have lives of substance and not fluff as we seek to encourage others, to edify believers, to edify our brothers and sisters as we're striving for the health of Christ's church. We must do so with Christ-like efforts which are grounded in the truth of his word. We should not adopt man-centered methods for building God's Christ-founded church. Our lives as believers will be evaluated. Our works will be looked at. And how will you fare in that test? What will be revealed in that test? What will be burned up? What will be burned up as completely useless in your life? What will be enduring and substantial and pass the test of Christ's judgment? Practically, who are you pouring into spiritually? And how are you pouring into them? How are you pointing them to Christ and helping them grow in Christian maturity? Helping other people follow Jesus is one of the most direct and tangible ways that you can personally be laying up for yourself treasures in heaven. Both, both on the evangelistic front, sharing the gospel with someone that's never heard it before, and also on the, the edification and encouragement front, walking alongside one that, that has believed the gospel but needs help. A question to reflect on perhaps later today. How have you previously thought about heavenly rewards for the believer? And how do the parables of Luke 19 and Matthew 25 illustrate that the concept of eternal rewards are supposed to be a factor in that believers, that believers consider? And then lastly, as we look at wrongness of disunity, disunity fundamentally misses the fact that Christ is overall. Not Paul, not Apollos, Christ is over all. This is the wisdom of becoming a fool for Jesus. The wisdom of this world, which sets itself against the church, is not compatible with Christ and is therefore utterly folly. Look at verse 18 and just be warned as we reflect on this passage. Let no one deceive himself. A whole series could and probably should be done on self-deception, how it happens, what it looks like, how we can discover it in ourselves. But one, it's dangerous because we're deceived if we're self-deceived, which highlights the importance of walking the Christian life with others, with others that are willing to call you out and say, brother, sister, you're deceived. You're not seeing this how you should. Paul provides the punchline in this section, really summarizing all that he's talked about so far provides the punchline regarding why division over teachers is foolish. I included a quote here from Nacelli again, but essentially, they were all saying, I'm Paul's, I'm Apollos's, I'm Cephas's. 
where we read in our translations, I follow Paul. The follow is not in there. It's just, I belong to, I am of so-and-so. And Paul reverses the slogan from chapter 1, verse 12, and essentially says, Christian, it's foolish for you to say, I follow so-and-so, I follow so-and-so, I am of so-and-so. You are Christ's. You do not belong to Paul. Paul belongs to you. You belong to Christ and thus to God. Because Christ is over all things, he's who we belong to, but also because Christ is reigning and we belong to him, everything belongs to us. Which is basically the way that Paul just flips it around and says, don't just align yourself with one person. You have everything in Christ. Christ is over all. He's who you submit to. He is your authority. So it's not that, oh yeah, I have a certain group of people. I, Paul, have a certain group of people and Apollos has a certain group of people. Far from it. Everyone is Christ's. The world, life, death, things present, things future, all of this belongs to Christ and therefore it all belongs to you. You have it totally backwards to just align yourself with someone else. It's kind of an interesting linguistic twist that Paul does. It is hard for us to follow, I think, but it, it effectively highlights totally foolish to just align yourself with one teacher. So in conclusion, division within the church is wrong because it flows from infantile thinking It fails to recognize that God is the one building his church. It tends towards building with man-centered building materials. It destroys what God is committed to building. And it fundamentally misses the fact that Christ is over all things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are committed to building your church. Our efforts, our desire, our zeal for your work ebbs and flows. We have good days, we have bad days, we have days in which we are uh, zealous for good works, and we have days in which we are blah before you. We thank you that you are committed to producing Christ-like character in each of us individually as your children, but also corporately as a body and as a church family. Help us to labor in alignment with your will in this. Thank you so much, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.